0: let's pray. God, this morning before I pray some very specific things about how we spend these next few minutes, I want to pray for another church and another pastor and his wife. I want to pray for Adam Brind and for Grace Community Fellowship. Lord, knowing that they are going through a very challenging season, um, I pray that, that the kingdom would be advanced through this season as they are having to work through some hard decisions and work through some difficult issues. Lord, I pray that this would actually be something that they look back and see that not only has the kingdom been advanced, but the gospel has come into focus through this time. I'm thankful for time with Steve Lawson this week, thankful for uh, a shared burden for your glory and your fame in this community that we share with Grace Community Fellowship. I'm thankful for these hard seasons that you bring each of our churches through that refine us, that grow us, stretch us. We pray for our sister church and our community. Pray for Adam and his family. I pray for their worship, Lord, that it be as fine and as robust and healthy as it's ever been right now. I pray this morning that Adam, if he's preaching, that he is about to bring, or already begin, beginning to bring, a hearty, healthy, potent word. God, we lift them up and we're thankful for their ministry, thankful for their friendship. Lord, also this morning, I want to pray for how we're gonna spend these next few minutes. I, um, I guess more, more so than ever, as I've been in the pulpit, I realize there's not going to be any hearing apart from the work of the Holy Spirit. So even before I say a word from Isaiah, I ask you to speak to hearts, speak through noise, speak through um, 2,700 years of separation in time from the passage we're looking at today. I pray for a supernatural engagement with a living word this morning. And I know and believe with everything in me that the Holy Spirit can and does do that. I pray you'll speak in spite of me. I offer up my very human desires to want to do a good job, to be well thought of. I offer that up. I confess it i put it to death right now before we start. If it takes me being made a fool for your message to go out this morning, I pray that we together will enjoy the goodness and the sweetness of the gospel, whatever it takes. We entrust this time to you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Turn to the book of Isaiah. If you're here for the first time or first of a couple times, this is our second Sunday in the book of Isaiah. We are going to be spending a total of six weeks in Isaiah in the first few chapters. Then we're going to be moving back to Ephesians. Ephesians is sort of bread and butter, home base for us, at least for the time being, for most of my, our preaching and most of our preaching, all of my preaching. Um, but we're spending six weeks, little small sections, digestible sections in this book of Isaiah This is the second Sunday in that investment and that installment. And I ask you that if you weren't here last Sunday, you need to listen to last Sunday's message. In many ways, it is a legend for how to read the map. It is a guide for how to read and interpret the rest of Isaiah. So it was a one Sunday investment that we could have in our library for the purpose of you going back to if you missed it. So I encourage you, if you missed that sermon, you need to hear it. Are these lights down where they usually are? Okay, all right. I want to ask you a couple of questions before we begin because we're hopefully going to ask and answer these. We're going to inform these answers or these questions with hearty answers over the course of our time together this morning. Two questions I want to ask you to consider. First of all, what do you believe about the nature of man? Do you believe that man is inherently good? I'm glad to hear somebody say hardy no already. already. Stole my thunder. We can just close (laughs) in prayer right now. What do you believe about the nature of man? Do you believe that man is inherently good? Let me ask you this to even make it more specific and more personal. What do you expect of man? Whether it's on the interstate, in the grocery store, in a relationship? In a marriage, in the mirror, what do you expect of man? The second question I want you to consider this morning is what do you believe about God? If I wrote this sentence out on the board, on some sort of chalkboard or something, how would you fill this in? God is blank. Think about that. Don't answer it just yet. You may already have a thought in your mind about how you would answer that. But over the course of the morning, I'm hoping that you'll have a healthy answer. For God is blank. Isaiah chapter one verse one is sort of an introductory passage. This morning we're going to be considering verses two through nine, but we'll read verse one just for the sake of context and for the sake of introduction. The vision of Isaiah, the son of Amoz, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah kings of Judah. This is probably the biggest vision in our Bibles. It covers 66 chapters. It's not many little miniature visions. It's one big 40-year-long vision. Isaiah had about a 40-year ministry, and it covered 250 years' worth of history. It covered not only Isaiah's time, but this, this book... This 66-chapter book covers Isaiah's time, it covers the time of the Babylonian exile, and it covers the time where the people would be restored to the land. So the second two-thirds of this book are all prophetic and after Isaiah is dead and gone. It covers 250 years of history, but it also covers prophecy from the 7th century B.C. in Isaiah's day all the way through Christ's birth, all the way to some things that will happen at the end of the age it's a massive vision and I will say this it's super complicated I told somebody this morning I said I don't know what in the world I was thinking and I'm not talking about just today I'm just talking about Isaiah what in the world was I thinking to not only put myself I was thinking as I was standing back over there a few minutes ago as we were singing I was singing, but I was also thinking, I think I'd rather be on Dancing with the Stars than preach this morning. I'm not a reluctant messenger. I just would be rather made a fool of with clumsy feet than a fool trying to expose such a complicated book. It is a massive vision, a complicated vision. So I'm going to do every single thing that I can within my ability this morning to try and make it simple to where we can walk away with some good hearty answers to those two questions that we asked right up front. What is the nature of man and what do we believe about God? I'm going to read verses 2 through 9 just for the sake of continuity, but we're going to come back and sort of grab it in sections. Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. Children have I reared and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its owner and the donkey its master's crib, but Israel does not know. My people do not understand. Ah, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly. They have forsaken the Lord. They've despised the Holy One of Israel. They are utterly estranged. Why will you still be struck down? Why will you continue to rebel? The whole head is sick. The whole heart is faint from the sole of the foot even to the head. There's no soundness in it, but bruises and sores and raw wounds. They are not pressed out or bound up or softened with oil. Your country lies desolate. Your cities are burned with fire. In your very presence, foreigners devour your land. It's desolate as overthrown by foreigners, and the daughter of Zion is left like a booth in a vineyard like a lodge in a cucumber field, like a besieged city. If the Lord of hosts had not left us a few survivors, we should have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. I want to sort of give you a visual. As we climb into these verses, we're going to break these down in a few different little chunks and sort of unpack the luggage that's in these passages in order to engage them at the end of the sermon in a way that has some sense. But I want you to envision a courtroom setting I've been in a courtroom for a few, a few different occasions for adoptions, and you may have been in the courtroom for those types of occasions that are real joyful kids running around everywhere, the judge is lighthearted, everybody's lighthearted, really beautiful occasions in that adoption setting in a courtroom. But don't envision that type of courtroom setting this morning. Envision one of those real ominous occasions, like you may have seen in a movie. I want you to envision, too, that there's a judge at the bench, that there's a prosecuting attorney. There are witnesses, and there's someone wearing orange, seated out in the courtroom. And at this point, I want you to consider them sort of nameless and faceless for a minute. I want you to just take in the setting, the dark wood, the leather, smell the leather in this judgment environment. Envision the gavel sitting up on the bench. Big one, big God-sized gavel. Someone's wearing orange, but we're nameless and faceless at this point. And this first couple of verses in chapter 1, verses 2 and 3, begin to put some faces or some names with some faces. Let's look at this passage. Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. Children have I reared and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its owner, and the donkey its master's crib. But Israel does not know. My people do not understand that. Let me give you some some names with some faces. First of all, God, the Father, is a name in in the courtroom here. He's talking about his children, Israel. That's another name in the courtroom, but let's just talk about the Father for a minute. The Father is in the courtroom, and the Father also happens to be the judge sitting at the bench with this big gavel, sitting in front of him and next to him. In Israel, to be specific, Judah is sitting in orange in the courtroom. The witnesses in this courtroom, they're called right here in the first verse, Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth. All creation sits as witnesses in this courtroom. Heavens and earth. And here in this first couple of passages, we hear the charge that's read by the father and the judge. And the charge here is, Children have I reared and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. He goes on to say, uses an illustration we'll consider here in a moment, but he goes on to say that Israel, this child of mine, does not know and my people do not understand. Turn, if you would, to Deuteronomy chapter 4. I'm going to be taking you three or four different places this morning, and I'm pretty sure that they're all in Deuteronomy. So you can kind of put a finger over there or a bookmark or something, but Deuteronomy chapter 4 is the first of those few places I'm going to have you turn This passage was written about 800 years, 750 years or so before Isaiah. It has to do with this people that we're talking about this morning. It has to do with the children in orange. Okay, connecting the dots here. Moses is writing these words here in Deuteronomy chapter 4, beginning in verse 32. I want you to hear the background, the context for these children in orange here's how they were reared and here's how they were cared for. For ask now of the days that are past which were before you since the day that God created man on the earth and ask from one end of heaven to the other whether such a great thing as this has ever happened or was ever heard of. Sounds like something pretty awesome is about to be told here. Did any people, any people anywhere, did any people in any time ever hear the voice of a God speaking out of the midst of the fire As you have heard and still live. Or has any God ever attempted to go and take a nation for himself from the midst of another nation by trials, by signs, by wonders, by war, by a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, and by great deeds of terror? He's speaking about the Exodus. All of which the Lord your God did for you in Egypt before your very eyes. To you it was shown, you blessed children, that you might know that the Lord is God, that there is no other besides Him, that you might know that the Lord is God. Out of heaven he let you hear his voice, that he might discipline you. And on earth he let you see his great fire, and you heard his words out of the midst of the fire. And because he loved your fathers and chose their offspring after them, and brought you out of Egypt with his own presence by his great power, driving out before you, nations greater and mightier than you, to bring you in, to give you their land for inheritance as it is this day. No, therefore, today... And lay it to your heart that the Lord is God in heaven above. And on the earth beneath, there is no other. This passage here in Deuteronomy, Moses is writing these words before they go into the promised land. And these words are saying, God is God alone. He is your God. This is why he did this for you. That you may know that the Lord is God, he says in verse 35. He says in verse 39, Therefore, know today and lay it to your heart that the Lord is God in heaven above and on the earth beneath. There is no other. The problem here in this context is they sit in orange in this courtroom is they don't know that anymore. 750 years later, they're sitting here in the courtroom having forgotten their God. They've rebelled against him and they've forgotten him. Their God. God. Isaiah's not exactly going for popularity contests in the, the illustration that he uses here that, that an ox and a donkey are more loyal than they are. And an ox and a donkey, oh, by the way, saying are smarter than you are. The ox and the donkey were not the wisest, smartest of animals in their context. In fact, he's picked two of the dumbest animals you could possibly illustrate with, and he's using them and saying they're more loyal to their master than you have been to your father children of israel that are sitting there in orange i was in south carolina a couple weeks ago visiting some friends and we were having dinner together or lunch i guess at a a mexican restaurant and the the gal of the couple friends of ours from years back she was telling a story about her brother she said you know her brother's not very smart and she actually said i love idioms that are messed up she said he's not the smartest tool in the shed just let that hit you for a minute She's talking about how dumb her brother is, and she says, he's not the smartest tool in the shed. Some of you still had not gotten that. You have to think about that a while. The idiom is he's not the sharpest tool in the shed. And I had to laugh because I was thinking about Israel. They're definitely not the smartest tool in the shed. The ox and the donkey know their owner, and they know where to find his loving care But Israel has forgotten that. So God will bring on them exactly what he's expecting of his people. The next passage I'd like you to turn to is Deuteronomy chapter 21. Deuteronomy chapter 1 is sadly prophetic. Verse 18. He's given instructions in this chapter. You can just see the headings there for unsolved murders for the marrying of female captives, just sort of a miscellaneous list of things of how to deal with certain situations when they come into the promised land. And here's in verse 18, listen to this. If a man has a stubborn and rebellious son who will not obey the voice of his father or the voice of his mother, and though they discipline him, will not listen to them, then his father and his mother shall take hold of him and bring him out to the elders of his city at the gate of the place where he lives. And they shall say to the elders of the city, This our son is stubborn and rebellious. He will not obey our voice. He's a glutton and a drunkard. And then all the men of the city shall stone him to death with stones. So you shall purge the evil from your midst, and all Israel shall hear and fear. This is a little taste of the background and the context for what is actually in store for this rebellious son who sits in this courtroom in orange. God is going to do exactly what he's calling his people to do to stone and punish the rebellious son. Let's go back to the courtroom, back to our passage in Isaiah chapter 1. Flip back over there if you don't have it in front of you. I want you to see where we're going in these next few minutes. We're back in the courtroom, we've identified the judge and father wearing two hats, we've identified who's wearing orange, the children of Israel are sitting there in orange, we've identified that the witnesses are heaven and earth, and now we introduce another player here in this next verse. Ah, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity. Here we find Isaiah speaking. So far we've heard God speaking in the courtroom. But now Isaiah begins to speak in some ways as the prosecuting attorney. And he says, ah, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity. You can almost see him speaking to the children of Israel sitting there in orange. He's speaking to them, a people laden with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly. They have forsaken the Lord. They despise the Holy One of Israel. They are utterly estranged. God has already spoken and pronounced what the charges are. And here, though, Isaiah presents the evidence for the charge of rebellion. They've become a sinful people, they've become laden with iniquity. They're the offspring of evildoers who are just growing more and more evil and more and more corrupt with every single generation. They're outdoing their parents in evil. And ultimately, he says here, they have forsaken him. They have outright despised the Holy One of Israel, the only true God. Now, if you're like me at this point, you're wondering, how did they do that? What did this look like? I want to know what that looks like so I don't do that. So I'm not like that people. That's a fair question, and I'll just give you a little taste of what's in store for our time together in in Isaiah. We're going to see very graphic images of this later in the book, but we'll see this in these next few weeks. That what they were guilty of ultimately was idolatry. And now before you dismiss idolatry as just this little carved creature, little, little face, funny face little thing that you carve and that you bow down to and you worship and you maybe offer up some incense and things like that, that's not the idolatry we're talking about. Though there are pictures of that in Isaiah, that's not what he's talking about ultimately. Idolatry in Isaiah is very uncomfortable for me. Idolatry in Isaiah, this is a quote from one of, one of my commentators, is the achievement of security through manipulation of personalized forces. Let me put that in Ben terms. It's trusting in man-contrived plans rather than simply trusting him like a child should trust his father. That's the idolatry we're going to see in the book of Isaiah. That's what I'm saying gets very uncomfortable for me because I can do that with the best of them. Anyone else? Ever trust in your own designs and your own plans and don't trust in God's designs and God's plans? That's idolatry in the book of Isaiah. Maybe the most uncomfortable lesson I've learned so far. The little wooden idol thing is easy to dismiss. This, though, is uncomfortable When your idol may in fact be yourself and your own schemes and your own plans and your own designs, now we're getting really, really uncomfortable. That's how they've forsaken their God. That's how they've despised the Holy One of Israel. Now let me just take a moment to just share with you this phrase, this Holy One of Israel. This is Isaiah's favorite reference to God. He uses that phrase, the Holy One of Israel, 29 times throughout the book of Isaiah. It is a very important reference in this book because they're in a context where they're worshiping the pagan gods. And the pagan gods in that context are these sort of superhuman versions of them. But here, when he says the Holy One of Israel, first of all, he says the, which is the definite article, as in there's only one. And he says the Holy One of Israel, that Holy One means he's set apart. He's not superhuman. He's not a superhuman version of you. He is suprahuman. He is altogether different. He is altogether separate from creation. He is creator. He's not part of creation. He is suprahuman. He is the maker of the world and the only one worthy of this title of the Holy One of Israel. So far, if you're collecting some some thoughts about God so far in this passage, just as far as we've gone right now, you can see him as father. You can see him as judge. And you can see him now when we add in this new term that he is the Holy One of Israel. He's separate, set apart, and he's not one of us. Now let's continue on in our passage. So far we've heard the charges that have been shared by God, the the judge, the father judge. And then we've heard the prosecuting attorney present the evidence. Now the prosecuting attorney is going to give the sentence. Now we're going to hear what's in store for this people. And I'll just give you a little heads up what to look for in these next few minutes. God is going to wound his people. God is going to inflict some pain and suffering and wounds on this wayward child. Look at this passage in verse 5. Why will you still be struck down? It sounds like the gates outside the city gate where the elders and the father and mother are stoning their son. Why will you still be struck down? Why will you continue to rebel? The whole head is sick. The whole heart is faint from the sole of the foot even to the head. There's no soundness in it, but bruises and sores and raw wounds. They are not pressed out are bound up or softened with oil, This whole body is a reference to all of Judah. We're not talking about just some few little sections of the southern kingdom there. We're talking all of Judah is sick through and through from the top of the head to the soles of the feet. And two, we're not just talking about some sort of passive sickness. Sores are passive. But the other two things that are mentioned here are not passive things. The bruises and the raw wounds are the kind of things in Hebrew that come about in battle in the Hebrew language. We're speaking about battle wounds. And what is, what is being developed here is these bruises and raw wounds are going to come from the judge. The judge is going to actively wound his child. Some of their pain and suffering will be, most in fact, will be the direct judgment of God. Now, put a little side note next to this because this is going to be very important during our supper this morning. Keep these wounds in mind for the end of the message this morning during our supper. Keep these sores and these bruises and these raw wounds in mind. But know this, though, before we move on. God is inflicting these wounds. Father, Judge, and Holy One of Israel is inflicting these wounds Now, let's continue with verse 7 and 8. Your country lies desolate. Your cities are burned with fire. In your very presence, foreigners devour your land. It's desolate as overthrown by foreigners. And the daughter of Zion is left like a booth in a vineyard, like a lodge in a cucumber field, like a besieged city. This prized possession, this daughter of Zion, has become like a booth and a lodge. In that day and age when they were dealing with their, their, their farming instead of in the times of harvest, instead of coming and going from where they lived to their fields, they would set up little booths, little temporary shelters where the whole crew could stay on location. They could get up in the morning, do their work, and just retire to this little temporary booth. It would keep them from having to waste time coming to and fro. But I want you to see this. This daughter of Zion, this beautiful picture of Jerusalem, the city on the hill, he says, is going to be and has already become the sad image of a little shack in the middle of a barren vineyard or cucumber field. Your prized city has become a lonely shell of what it should be, and your sin has left you destitute, isolated, and here's the sad part of it, really, temporary, like a temporary lodging. In the coming weeks, we're going to develop more and more the terrible consequences for their sin. They are grave. They will be harassed. They will, be, uh, they will experience a siege around their city, Jerusalem, by the Assyrians. They will ultimately eventually be defeated and stripped from their their land by foreigners, as it promises here, called Babylonians. And then they're going to be exported to their cities as war trophies and slaves and made eunuchs in their courts. Let that hit you for a minute. Some terrible wounds and terrible judgment in store. The charges we've developed so far is that they are a rebellious child. They are God-forgetting people. And the evidence so far is that they're sinful. They are laden with iniquity. They're corrupt. They have forsaken God. They despised the Holy One of Israel. And the sentence for them are wounds. God-inflicted wounds of desolation being overrun by foreigners and ultimately to just be Temporary. Now, in this courtroom, I want you to imagine at this moment, the charges have been issued. The evidence has been presented by the prosecuting attorney. The sentence has been meted out. And now at this point, all are going to rise. And the guilty in orange is led toward the door to be taken to death row. Let those images hit you for a moment. And I want you to think about this for a minute. Wouldn't that be okay, given what they've done? Now, the hard part for you, not having really studied Isaiah in depth, is you've only gotten a thin little taste of what they've been guilty of. But something we will have in a heavy dose over the next few weeks is a clear picture of their guilt. But I'll tell you right now, it's bad. And if you think about it, if you really take in and consider their guilt, wouldn't it be okay if God ended it right here? Right here in verse 8, if he just ended it, and then in verse 9, which we haven't read yet, if we read about the rain starting to fall and yet another flood. Had he not sent a a rainbow and promised to never do it again, couldn't you imagine that in verse 9 would be a fitting place for that, where you start to hear the raindrops? or where you started to hear a fire rumble as a deluge of fire is going to, des- to destroy this people, wouldn't it be okay if a just judge, who's also altogether holy and altogether separate, the Holy One of Israel, who's also creator just said, you know what, I'm going to wipe this thing clean and call this mess a wash. Wouldn't it be okay? Would Yes. Thank you. There's a little dude over there, a little gal that's listening. I love it. Man, it would be okay. At this point in the oracle, we've got a father who's also a judge, who's also holy, who's rightly charging and sentencing his rebellious child. And we've got a people who sit in orange, who are like Paul described in Ephesians, dead in their trespasses and sins. We've got a people in orange, like Paul described in Ephesians, who are by nature children of wrath bound for destruction. We could say squarely right here, yes, indeed, the wages of sin is death. March them off to death row. But then comes verse 9. Look at verse 9. It's my treasured passage this morning. It's just uh, such a, a, a relief to see this verse here. God does something surprising and extraordinary in this next verse. It says, If the Lord of hosts had not left us a few survivors, we should have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. Instead of raindrops in this verse 9, instead of the crackle of fire as you hear a deluge of fire coming, you hear this promise that there are going to be a few survivors. Imagine as the guilty is leaving the courtroom with cuffs on, with head bowed in shame, laden with iniquity, Imagine the guilty leaving the courtroom with nothing on their mind except electricity. What is going to feel like to feel that voltage? Or what is going to feel like to feel that noose? Or what is going to feel like in that vein when that poison is injected? That guilty is leaving with head bowed and they're going toward the door, but the prosecuting attorney stands up and says, If the Lord of hosts, Father, Judge, and Holy One of Israel had not left us a few survivors. We should have become extinct. And then the guilty, with head bowed, looks up and says, You mean there's hope? He looks up and says, Wait a second. You mean there might be a way out of this? He looks up and says, you mean a few, a remnant uh, will survive a deserved and certain punishment and destruction? It's an awesome moment really, when you really take in what's going on here in the courtroom. The guilty still shuffles off to death row, but he shuffles off with a little seed of hope that there might be a way out of this. That this judge who's also my father, that I stand holy and completely guilty before, who is also the Holy One of Israel, may also be something else. As you stand in orange, man, wouldn't you hope so? Wouldn't that be some good news? I love that Isaiah says, we... It's a sweet word right there. He says, if the Lord of hosts had not left us a few survivors, he says us too, left us a few survivors, we should have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. What he's implying in there is that he's wearing orange as well. We just were thinking about one person wearing orange. Well, the prosecuting attorney is wearing it as well. There's no one in the courtroom that's not except for the judge. He's guilty as well. And he says here, we should be made extinct. Our sin is that corrosive. Our sin as a people is that damaging. And God is that holy that we should be made like Sodom and Gomorrah. A proverbial byword of destruction and wickedness. Just a story you tell your kids when you take them on holiday to the Dead Sea. Years ago, I got to go to the Dead Sea with the Simmons, Christy and I. Dead Sea's crazy salty. I mean, you step out into it a few steps and you can't stand anymore because it picks your feet out from under you and you bob like a, like a, a fishing cork out there. Like on your back, you can't get up. And the reason it's salty is because Sodom and Gomorrah lie at the bottom of it. A byword of extinction. A byword of destruction. And Isaiah says, man, that ought to be us. But... God is leaving a few survivors. (laughs) But God is leaving a remnant. But God, this judge, this father, this holy one of Israel, is going to do this, setting aside some survivors as an act of mercy. So, yes, he's judge. Yes, he's holy. And yes, he's father, but he's also merciful. Now, going back to the questions that I asked you at the beginning of the morning, what do you believe about the nature of man and what do you believe about God? Let's start with man first. Turn to Deuteronomy chapter 32. This is the last place I'm going to have you turn this morning, but it's an important one. I want you to see it. You got to see it. Deuteronomy chapter 32, these children have rebelled, and that, just, just let it hit you for a minute that he's referring to them as children, not acquaintances. They're not pals, they're not friends, they are his children, and his children have rebelled it's got to be especially heartbreaking considering this Deuteronomy 4 passage that we read that said, Did any people ever hear the voice of God speaking out of the midst of a fire as you have heard and still live? Has any God ever attempted to go and take a nation for himself from the midst of another nation by trials, by signs, by wonders, by war, by a mighty hand, by an outstretched arm, by great deeds of terror, all of which the Lord your God did for you? Is there anybody else in the whole world that has been as blessed as this people, yet they are Rebels. They have ultimately broken covenant with him. They no longer knew him. They no longer understood him. The donkey and the ox know better than they do. They're not the smartest tools in the shed. They have forsaken him. They have despised him. They have traded the truth about God for a lie and are worshiping and serving the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. They are trusting in their own designs and their own device. It's a sad story, but it's not the first time we've ever heard this story. In fact, there's music behind this story. This is what struck me as I was studying this week there's a song about this. Deuteronomy chapter 32 is a song about what's going on right here, and it was written almost 800 years before this went down in Judah. It was written by Moses before they crossed the Jordan into the Promised Land. You could think about how this might have gone down, where Moses is talking to Jale- uh, Caleb and Joshua. Jaleb, I was about to make a whole new name. Caleb and Joshua, he said, Hey guys, before y'all go into the Promised Land, let me write a song for you. And they're like, Oh, that'd be cool. Yeah, maybe something really upbeat, you know, because we're going to go in the promised land. It's going to be awesome. We're going to go, you know, do the conquest and fit the Battle of Jericho. It's going to be really cool. Give us something really cool, Moses. Okay, so Moses puts pen to paper, and here's what he writes beginning in verse 1. Give ear, O heavens, and I will speak, and let the earth hear the words of my mouth. Who knows what tune this was sung to? Who even knows if it was sung to a tune? It's a song. May my teaching drop as the rain, my speech distill as the dew, like gentle rain upon the tender grass and like showers upon the herb, for I will proclaim the name of the Lord, ascribe greatness to our God. Sounds good so far. Moses, man, I like this first little section here. That's going to be awesome singing that as we cross the Jordan on dry ground, as we're fitting the battle of Jericho and stuff like that. That's going to be really cool. The rock, his work is perfect for all his ways are justice, a God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright is he. Man, I really like this song so far, Moses. You are getting it done. Keep it up, buddy. This is really good. They have dealt corruptly with him. They are no longer his children because they are blemished. They are a crooked and twisted generation. You might know about Debbie Downer. It's like, all right, Moses just became Debbie Downer. And it doesn't change really for the rest of the song. You can almost hear the music behind it now. It's like, wah, wah, wah. Caleb and Joshua are like, Moses, man, we're about to go do the conquest. We want something that's a rally song, you know? And Moses says, okay, I'm going to write a song about not only what your fathers did in the wilderness, but what your great-great-great-great-grandchildren would do in Isaiah's day. This song continues. Let's just take it in for a minute. "Do, Do you thus repay the Lord, you foolish and senseless people? Is not He your Father who created you, who made you? And established you, remember the days of old, remember the years of many generations, ask your father and he will show you your elders and they will tell you when the most high gave to the nations their inheritance, when he divided mankind, he fixed the borders of the peoples according to the number of the sons of God, but the Lord's portion is his people, Jacob, his allotted heritage, he found him in a desert land. Talking about the Exodus, talking about Egypt. And in the howling waste of the wilderness, he encircled him and cared for him. He kept him as the apple of his eye. That's a treasured passage for us, and it should be. Like an eagle that stirs up stirs up its nest, that it flutters over its young, spreading out its wings, catching them, bearing them up on his pinions. The Lord alone guided him. No foreign god was with him. He made him ride on the high places of the land. The song sounded better. I like the sound of this, Moses. You came, came around. He, he ate the produce of the field. He suckled him with honey out of the rock and oil out of the flinty rock, curds from the herd and milk from the flock. This, thing, this song is going good. I like it. The fat of lambs, rams of Bashan, and goats with the very finest of the wheat and you drank foaming wine made from the blood of the grape, but Jeshurun grew fat and kicked. You grew fat, stout, and sleek. Then he forsook God who made him and scoffed at the rock of his salvation. And the rest of the song goes right back to that message. Jeshurun was like... it's as if God were to give a nickname, a nickname of affection to the nation of Israel. But in this context, it has to do with the people that have become fat and sleek and they don't need God and they have forsaken God and they have turned their back on Him, forgotten Him altogether. I was thinking about my cat this morning. I'm thinking about Jeshurun, fat and sleek. This cat is my, my son, my youngest. Kids, Daniel, that's his cat. He loves this cat. And I really have no use for cats before this cat. He's really kind of a cool cat. But when Daniel's gone, Daniel and Christy and the kids are out of town this weekend, when Daniel's gone, this cat will not leave me alone. (laughs) He's got no use for me when Daniel's there, though. So I'm on to him. It's a her. Her name is Daisy. I'm on to her. She's fat and sleek, and she's just in it for herself. She's a beautiful picture of a little pagan. She's just all about herself. She's not converted. You call her, and she looks at you and says, what? Come here, Daisy. She looks at you and says, I'll come to you when I'm good and well ready, when I want to get scratched. If you need something, you call your dog. You can almost hear her. I mean, she's almost audible. She's fat and sleek, Jesuit. That's what this people have become. Fat and sleek. God, we will come to you. We'll be about you when we need something. And only when we need something. You want us? You need us? Huh. Call your dog. Man, Moses here is writing. As you read the rest of this song, I encourage you to read it this week. He's talking about far more than the wilderness experience. He gives so much detail that it's clearly prophetic. He is foretelling about this time of Isaiah 700, 800 years later. He is foreseeing about this time. And it is a sad song about rebellion. But it's a song that's been playing over and over and over and over again because people, this people are fat and sleek and forgetful of God when things are going their way. I read this song and I'm thinking, God, why in the world are you putting up with this people? Why in the world would you knowingly endure with this people knowing, here as Moses is writing this song, that what they would be 800 years later? Why in the wide world of sports are you putting up with these folks? Man, I thought, you know, some could have asked the same thing about Adam and Eve, though. Why are you putting up with Adam and Eve when they've done what they've done to you? Or it could have been asked about Noah and Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Why are you doing that with Shem, Ham, and Japheth when they're just proving that the only difference between man before the flood and man after the flood is one bunch of men and people are a little bit drier? God, why in the world are you putting up with man when you know what man is going to do? Why not wipe them out like Sodom and Gomorrah? Why let anyone live ought to be a foundational question for us. Why let anybody live? The thing that struck me is that God wasn't caught off guard here. He wasn't like, oh, man, this people, you know, I gave them my best, you know. And then there they are. They failed. And phew, I'll just try again, I guess. He sounded sound like a country boy. I should have I given him a different sound maybe. He knew before he said, let there be light, what, the, what these people were going to do. He knew before he said, let there be Adam, let there be Eve, what Adam and Eve were going to do. He knew before he called Abram what this people was going to do. He wasn't making an attempt at creating a purified, devoted people. What he was doing was building a thousand-year stage, a thousands-of-year-long backdrop for a sky full of angels announcing glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among those with whom he's pleased. This is all background. Where a field full of shepherds can say, Finally! here's a solution to my human problem. Not just a bunch of Israelites, but a bunch of human beings can drop to their knees and say, finally, it's here. Because this isn't just Israel's story. This is the human story. Adam and Eve were his children too. Yet they rebelled and listened to a voice calling from underneath a green tree. And Satan called, and he lied, and he enticed, and Eve took, and Adam ate. And they experienced the curses of God as a result. Death and eviction, they too were utterly estranged. We should have been like Sodom and Gomorrah. That's got to be foundational to your understanding of the good news in the gospel. That's got to be foundational to your understanding of man. Romans says none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. You hear the music playing in the background. Deuteronomy 32 is playing in the background, the song of Moses. All have turned aside. Together they become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. In the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Later it says in here that all have sinned and all fall short of the glory of God. That is background. He took thousands of years to prove it. Thousands of years. We should be like Sodom and Gomorrah. For the wages of sin is death. Man is inherently evil. Man is inherently selfish. Man is inherently godless. And Israel proved it. Or and or. But if the Lord of hosts had not left a few survivors... Would just be a byword. Here's the thing I want you to consider as we're just answering this first question. Enjoy being a part of his remnant because that's who you are. You may not realize it. You're one of the survivors. (laughs) Let it hit you. You're one of the survivors. Romans eleven five 5 says, At the present time, there is a remnant that's chosen by grace. Let it hit you, survivors. Man, we all deserve to be a salty story. But God is saving a remnant. Man, that's some serious good news right there. That's great news. The second question, the second question is shorter. It's the last, where we're going to land the plane this morning. What does this passage tell us about God? I asked you to consider if I wrote out a question on a board or in your notebook or something like there, it said God is blank, what would you put in there? And I expect that most contemporary Christians would put, first and foremost, put the word love in there. You're not at fault. I won't say that you're wrong if you were to do that, but hopefully you would put, maybe try and cram a few more words in that little blank with me this morning because he's so much more than that because he's also father, this passage has shown us, but he's also judge. He doesn't park his judgment when it comes to his children like most of us do. Parents, I've done it and I've heard it Enough times to know when someone comes to me and says, hey, do you know what your son has done? And I'm like, not my son. Because he's mine. He can't be guilty, right? Any other parents ever done that? Takes you a little while to really absorb. Oh, yeah, he's guilty. But your default setting is, no, I'm going to park my justice when it comes to my son. Well, I go know that our God and Father doesn't do that. He's still all together, judge and just while at the same time being father and he's also the holy one of israel that's be hard to cram in that little spot Maybe we would just write really tiny small. We'd make a big old, big old blank there. We'd fill it in with all kinds of things that he is also Father. He is also just. He is also the Holy One of Israel. And I'll just have to ask you the question would holiness and justice make the top three or four if you were to put a few things in that blank? They should. And I'm hoping that Isaiah helps build that into your answer. Because you're going to see it over and over again. The Holy One of Israel. The Holy One of Israel. And lastly, Isaiah introduces another wonderful trait, a surprise trait. He introduces a characteristic of our God here as He's Father, He's just, He's holy, and then in light of verse 9, He's merciful. He's merciful and He's Savior. He's Judge. He calls heaven and earth as witnesses. He has a prosecuting attorney there, and it turns out he's also Savior. He's also somehow gonna make a way out for the people in orange. The judge has pronounced the charges, and the prosecuting attorney has brought the evidence and the sentence. And about the time you expect the gavel to fall, you hear the words if the Lord of hosts, the judge, the father, the holy one of Israel, had not left us a few survivors. We'd just be a salty, bad memory. But God makes a way for those in orange. Amen? (laughs) You got to love that. Amen, that's right. Man, I love having kids in here with us. They're more vocal than the parents. All right, we're going to have our supper now, and it's it's a fitting supper in light of where we've been this morning. I'm going to read a passage to you again and then share another passage from Isaiah. And you'll see that we've been here, I think, by design this morning. Isaiah chapter 1, passage that we read, I told you to sort of put a little bookmark in this thought. Chapter 1, verse 5 says, Why will you still be struck down? Why will you continue to rebel? The whole head is sick, the whole heart is faint. You're a guilty orange-wearing people. You even got orange socks and an orange hat on, from the sole of your foot to your head. There's no soundness in it, but bruises and sores and raw wounds. Remember that? Those God-inflicted bruises and raw wounds, they're not pressed out, are bound up, are softened with oil. Let that hit you for a minute. Open wounds not cared for. God-inflicted wounds not cared for at this point now uh, I love this Isaiah chapter 53 says who has believed what he's heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him. No beauty that we should desire him. He was despised. He was rejected by men. A man of sorrows acquainted with grief. As one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Listen to what unfolds in these next couple of verses. Surely he's borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, sm- Smitten by God and afflicted. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Remember, we're laden with them. He was crushed in our place. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we Are healed. With his wounds, those bruises, those sores, those God inflicted wounds from a righteous and holy Father Judge bring healing. His wounds took our place, and by his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned aside, every one of us. We all wear orange, apparently. Everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Every week when we have the Lord's Supper, we're reminding ourselves of that. A bunch of people wearing orange. (laughs) Who some way, by an act of shocking surprise, grace, and mercy, don't have to make the trip, the green mile, down to that chair, or to that noose, or to that syringe. Because Jesus got on the cross and did it for us. And by his wounds, our wounds are healed. That's some good medicine right there. Let's distribute the elements. Seriously fitting song. Man, I'm so thankful that y'all led us in that. That That's seriously fitting. Let's enjoy that our wounds are healed together by his wounds. Let's take and eat in faith. Let's take and drink. God, we are so thankful. So thankful for this difficult but graphic story of a people. We're thankful that we have so much Bible there that can help us understand the wonderful footing that we have where we are in the redemptive story. God, I pray that this morning, just for a few minutes, but even, I pray it's something that lingers this week. That we will enjoy hearing and knowing together that we are are survivors. That we are some of that remnant that you spoke of. That Christ has earned a way out for us. God, I enjoy even the reality that we wear orange. It's a hard reality, but it makes me enjoy you all the more. I'm thankful now that instead we wear the righteous clothing of another. We enjoy that today. We enjoy that this week. We give you the rest of our time as an offering. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Let's continue in song and offering. Just three things. First of all, kids, y'all did amazing. I mean, really, I, the last Sunday of the month, we have our littlest ones in, in with us. Not the little, little babies, but the, uh, the, big, the bigger kids that you guys did really good i'm thankful that y'all were attentive and interactive even i really enjoyed the 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 back and forth i appreciate it seriously it means you're listening and i, I love that that blesses me parents if you're like man i don't know i can do this this is really hard just stay the course trust me and trust parents who've raised little ones in the pew these aren't pews in the seats the um, it gets easier i promise and just stay the course stick with it and um They'll be, you'll be blessed by it, and they'll be blessed by it. They give more than you think. Secondly, uh, if you're here for the first of a couple times or first of a few times and haven't met with Clay at this table, please do that. He's going to give you a little packet that has some information in it. It also has a gift card to go to lunch on us this week. You can't go today because it's a Chick-fil-A, but um, you can go sometime this week and talk about what's in there. I mean, it wouldn't, may not feed a big family, but it would feed a good portion of it. And we want to do that because we want you to have a time where you don't have to worry about anything except for what's in front of you. And we're not trying to say that we're the only church in town or the best church in town because we're neither of those things. We just are. We're a people, and all churches are different. But if the Lord is leading you here, we want you to know who we are, what we believe, and what we're about. So we're trying to put that in front of you in one little packet. And lastly, um, I hope this morning that you're itching for a bigger line, a bigger blank. I hope that a product of this morning, how we spent these last few minutes, is that if you had that blank to fill in, God is blank that you just wouldn't be satisfied with a little tiny little line, that you'd be like, you know what? Give me me that pen. Give me that piece of chalk. I need to draw that thing out because I want to add some things in there because I'm seeing this morning that a few things come together in God being love, that he's Father, he's Judge, he's the Holy One of Israel, and he's Savior. That's how he's love. He's loving being all those things all at the same time. So that's why I hope we all want a bigger line. And we'd all have some good stuff to put in there. Some stuff that you could really enjoy this week. Y'all stand and I'll dismiss us in prayer. God, thank you so much for our time together this morning. I am so thankful for this really, really difficult book. I pray, I beg you for next Sunday. I beg for your help and your guidance. I pray for our life groups as they talk through what we've heard this morning. I pray for somebody that may be wanting to understand what it means to trust you and to believe on Christ, that they saw that uh, illustrated and explained this morning. I pray that you'd keep them up over that question and that they would find some answers and that they would trust you and cast themselves at your feet in faith. Lord, we love you. We entrust ourselves to you this week and give this week to you as an offering. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thank you all.